we wanted to give you a little preview and explanation of what we're doing today. Um, we have we promised you last week that we were going to have an episode on racism, and that's exactly what we're doing today. And this has been an incredibly uncomfortable topic for us, but we have realized through our conversations with each other, with, with mentors in this space, um, and just doing some of our own research and education that uh, our, our uncomfortableness, our discomfort is nothing compared to what um, the Black community, the Latinx community, Native American and Indigenous communities have been suffering for centuries. So we, we're really trying to put aside that discomfort and bring light to this issue. Yeah, the last couple weeks and the last couple days specifically, I, I personally had some uneasiness in my stomach. I don't know how to process this. How can I be a change? What do we need to do to become the change? And it starts here with these conversations. We have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think having this uneasiness isn't fun. And I'm learning to try to take care of myself through that. But we're the change. And we need to start having this dialogue. And we need to start ripping the band-aid off of these difficult conversations and asking those hard questions. You know, we want to hear from you listeners, what's going on in your gut? Because if something's going on, change is happening. So start, start resting in some of that uneasiness and start resting in how you can be the change in your community. Because it starts right here with us starting these awkward, hard conversations. We're going to ramble. We're going to fumble over our words. We're going to forget what we're going to say, but we're starting. We're starting the conversation and we want to make a change in agriculture specifically and start undoing the status quo that our ancestors have made over the years. You know, we have made a change since the start of our country, but there is a lot of change to still be had. And it's, we're not naive to that. And we're embracing ag what agriculture needs to do to be that change. Agriculture isn't having this conversation right now. We need to have this conversation. We have to be part of the solution. Otherwise, we're part of the problem. Millennial Ag stands to challenge the status quo. And that's exactly what we're doing. It's a long episode. Please bear with us. Every single second is worth it. We really want to hear from you. No kidding. We need your feedback, your honesty, and your vulnerability. This is Millennial Ag. Hello and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Last week, listeners, we put out a video onto social media um, regarding the current status of our nation with protests and riots and we said that we were committed to learning more about the issues and figuring out where we stand and trying to to do the right thing. So this week we've brought a very special guest. Yeah this week our guest um, is really near and dear to my heart and she if you listen to my our mental health intro she was the reason why I kind of switched my mindset about sophomore year and realized that I didn't have to quit performing for everybody else and I could start taking care of myself a little bit. So she, she introduced me to Brene Brown and vulnerability and it took me a few years to really appreciate it and come back around to it, but I'm so excited to see Shannon, even if it is virtual, and have her on today. But in addition to vulnerability, um, Shannon introduced me to um, racism 
and the issues kind of surrounding racism in agriculture and help me define what white privilege is and how blessed I am and how I can work to make a difference. So we are so excited to dive into it with her. Um, she's real, she's raw, and she's going to just help us uncover some things that we're afraid to even ask sometimes because we're afraid we're going to get pigeonholed or stereotyped or whatever. And she's, she's willing to answer those questions for us. So with that, I'm going to let Shannon introduce herself and her position now at Colorado State University as well. So thanks, Shannon, for being on. Hello, you bet. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, my name is Shannon Archbeck-Ingle. I serve Colorado State University through the Vice President for Diversity Office. Um, I formerly was in the Department of Animal Sciences as an advisor, and then I was the Director of Diversity and Retention in the College of Agricultural Sciences for a number of years. So my research is around diversity, equity, inclusion in agriculture, and um, I love this topic and I'm grateful, really grateful that um, we're starting to have it on a deeper level. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And I think, I think we can say that agriculture is probably one of the more um, siloed industries or, or communities in the United States, forgive the pun, um, in terms <laughs> of diversity and inclusion, because uh, we're mostly white, a lot of males, and typically older. So um, as part of Millennial Ag's mission to keep every topic on tap, especially with this one so timely, and Valine and I realizing that uh, we are very privileged and blessed to be where we are, um, it's time to share this platform for good. So Shannon, um, let's just start out with, could you define white privilege for us? Well, I'm not gonna give you the textbook answer that I gave Val in class. Okay? <laughs> so this, I don't think that that's helpful for your group. You can Google that. Um, there are lots of resources that will help you understand it. But I think the way to understand privilege is around um, what didn't cause you trouble. So when I think about, usually folks, when they push back, when I point out that they have privilege, I have light skin privilege, right? Usually white folks read me as white. I identify as Chicana, I grew up a farm worker, not a migrant farm worker, that's different, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, so I identify as Chicana, and um, so when we're having this conversation about white privilege, most folks will be like, I worked hard, I earned where I got. Um, and nothing about noticing, learning about your privilege says you didn't work hard. What it says is maybe you didn't have to work as hard as someone else. Maybe you did not have to overcome your gender or your um, race in order to get into the position that you have. So it's about where you start from, not necessarily where you end up. So, um, Examples, uh, usually I like to start around gender because um, race is uh, often a harder conversation for folks to have than gender. Mm -hmm. So an example around gender is whose name goes first on an envelope if a couple is married. Mr. Mr. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I think about a time when I was invited to um, go to my hometown and meet with county commissioners 
and extension folks as part of my job at CSU. This was when I was in the Department of Animal Sciences. And um, then at that night, the, the administrator who traveled with us introduced my husband, not me. He had, he had been home at my parents' house with the kids all day, right? But he's a faculty member. And so he was introduced, even though I had been working all day on behalf of the university. So that's an example about how this might work. Around race and ethnicity, it will be things like um, the network you have, right? How, how did you get introduced to the people that you now work with or work for? Were they already connected to people that you know and love in your life? Mm -hmm. And people um, you. Right. Did, um, did you have to leave part of yourself, part of your culture, part of your identity, part of the way that you see and work and love in the world in order to be at your workplace, right? Um, folks with different ethnicities other than white are often told, you can be here, but we just want you to act white while you're here, right? Give up, give up your culture, give up your, um, your values, give up the way that you interact, give up the way that you communicate, give up the way that you negotiate, give up the way that you problem solve. You can be here, but you got to change the way you show up in the world. So keeping yourself small so as to keep other people comfortable. Comfortable, right, <clears throat> which gives up, in terms of agriculture, it gives up the benefit of diversity, right? We're done solving all the easy problems. We're done. All the easy problems have been solved. All we got left is the hard problems, and we're going to need folks with different perspectives in that conversation in order to solve this problem. So it's not going to be the mindset that created the problems that's going to solve it. Otherwise, it would already be solved. <laughs> we would already figure that out, right? Right. You don't keep doing things the same way if it doesn't work. So we're going to need diverse perspectives. And if we don't allow folks to show up as their whole selves, we lose that benefit of having diverse folks in an agricultural conversation. So why, why do we have or expect people to come to, to adapt to our white privilege? Or where does that stem from? Like the history in agriculture is, is that way, but, but why is it that way? Because I, I always try to help solve problems by getting to the root of the, the issue. But why, what's the history of racism in agriculture? Or why is it stemmed there? Will you read that uh, quote that I sent to you, Val? Yes. The, um, the main thing about the labor supply is to muleize it. The supreme qualities of the laborer are that he shall work cheap and hard, eat little and drink nothing, belong to no union, have no ambitions, and present no human problems. Particularly, he should appear from nowhere when we need him, put up with what a accommodations he finds, provide his own food, and then disappear until the busy season comes again, comes around again. Some sort of human mule with the hibernating qualities of the bear and the fastidious gastronomic taste of the goat would be ideal provided he is cheap enough. Chester Rowell in Beast of the Field. 
So I think that that summarizes um, the history of agricultural labor in the United States well. Mm -hmm. um, the short answer to your question is it was set up this way, either through slavery or colonial uh, settlerism, right? The colonization of the United States. So we set it up this way. Say that again. The colonization of the United States was mostly by white people, right? Right. Or yeah. Europeans. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So in that, it was set up that way, right? We, we didn't honor treaties as a country with the Native Americans, right? There's lists and lists of treaties that we've never honored. There are lists, um, we, we, we set up, we benefited from slavery. Our country was built by slave labor. Other folks, hear me, other folks labored too, and we benefited from slavery. Our, the way that we built the United States and the economy of the United States, particularly in agriculture, benefited from slavery. In the South and East, it was black folks, Africans who were enslaved, on the West Coast, we often forget about the other folks that we enslaved. So we enslaved indigenous folks, we enslaved um, Mexicans, we enslaved, um, well, it, we didn't actually enslave Chinese folks, but we just sure as heck didn't treat them well. So it was built this way, this, um, and then we kept that going. So in like 1910, approximately 1910, the Cotton Growers Association Actually, that was the first time that legislation was introduced around excluding folks. And the same rhetoric we use today it was used in 1910. These people are stealing our jobs. Um, we've got to keep them out. Um, you know, this, the, the, they're, they're taking from us and they're not giving to us. They're benefiting from our society, all of that. So that happened around 1910, and that legislation was supported by the Cotton Growers Association. Then we go forward, right? I, this, I'm condensing books into <laughs> We appreciate that. <laughs> we, um, so we get into the um, 40s, 50s, and 60s after World War II. Um, well, in World War II, right, folks are off fighting. Men are off fighting, right? So we have to... Uh, retool the labor within the United States. A lot of women took the jobs in industry. A lot of Mexican folks, either Mexican-Americans, Mexicans, or, or American-Mexicans, took those jobs and we created the Bracero programs. So usually when we talk about the Bracero programs, we talk about it as one program, but it was a series of legislative events that allowed those folks to come in, work, and go back, right? We're talking about sugar beets, we're talking about dairies, we're talking about, na name something within ag. We're talking about agricultural labor. Mm -hmm. Is and that the then, business for our immigration policy today? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are folks, there are old Mexican men in the United States who are still walking around with their bracero cards because they think it provides them a level of protection. After all, the United States government gave it to them. 
right? Well, you know. So through the 60s, we had the, these Bracero programs, and then we let them sunset. And we never stopped relying on that source of labor. Only now, the burden is only carried by the folks who have to break laws, and I do that intentionally, in order to work. Because who bears the brunt of that, right? Who gets deported? Whose kids are in cages right now? Right, and that's on all of us. But we built this. So when value asks, how did we get to this point? We built it this way. And we have selective amnesia around our history. And that's actually, I think of agriculturalists, at least the stated values around with agriculturists that I know and love. Uh, one just walked into the backyard. Um, say things around integrity and honesty. And I think that that's true. At least I want to believe that that's true. But that includes having honesty and integrity by knowing our history and how we got here. It didn't, we just didn't land in 2020. And that's when folks are protesting, when folks are organizing, that's what they're talking about is there's this whole history and this burden, this weight of history about the way things were built that privileged some folks over others. And it's, I think the education part, you, you hit it on the head because we want to think everything's hunky-dory. We've got integrity. We're, we're proud American farmers. We've worked hard. Our grandfather labored the land. But all our history books, too, are written in a perspective of of us or of me and my when taught by like my government teachers were white privileged men and that's the perspective that i've been taught and that's what my parents know too and so it's yeah we had um migrant workers through the seasons to move hand lines and that sort of thing but i didn't you know it was we talked about visas and we talked about them going and back and forth, but the history and the systemic problem of it was never discussed. And to that point, Val, um, you know, we were, we were taught just the way that you said I was too. And we, we were of course taught that slavery is bad and, and that should no longer be a part of life, even though we know that it is still um, in our world today. But we sure as heck weren't taught the policies that arose from some of these some of these actions and how they are still affecting our industry today and I mean I what what do we do about that <laughs> I think that's intentional so I think it's intentional that you didn't learn because if, if you know the history one of two things happen, and I'm not the first person to say this, so I'm quoting other for folks, namely um, black folks, that there's not an option to be non-racist. You can either be racist or anti-racist, right? There's, there's, there's no neutral option here. So in terms of what you can do about it is you gotta learn. You gotta learn. It was intentional that you didn't learn all this history. People were intentionally excluded from um, making decisions. So the term Hispanic, right? I did not identify myself as Hispanic, though if I take 
a census, right? I'm gonna get to check them. I will never use that word to identify myself. The reason, part of the reason is because no one who could check that box was part of the conversation to create that box, right? Was no a one stereotype. Box. Right. And exactly. So white folks decided, what are these people have in common? Well, they all speak Spanish. They're Hispanic, right? It was deeper than that, that you can get into the history, mm -hmm. but it is imperative that not just American history includes black history. American history includes Latinx history. American history includes indigenous history. So it's not just enough for the black folks to know black history, the Latinx folks to know Latinx history and indigenous folks to know indigenous history. We all gotta know all of it. Otherwise we don't know American history. And if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat the problem, the mistakes we made in the past, which we're doing. Which certainly seems like the case today. Yes, absolutely. Can we jump back to your point about being you know, racist versus anti-racism and why you can't sit, sit on the fence. Because I've, you know, for a long time, I've, I've avoided jumping into this conversation because one, I don't know, and I don't take a side unless I educate myself. And I didn't take the time to educate myself. And when all this, specifically these protests started coming and I had people I valued posting things on social media, I was like, oh, I should probably dive into this a little more. And that's when I started to realize you can't be, this is one issue, you can't really be a fence sitter or hold on. But can you dive in just to why you can't be a fence sitter on this topic? Yeah, so you asked me in the beginning to push, right? So I'm gonna push on you. One of the reasons you could opt out, Belene, is because you're white. Brown and black, black folks don't get to opt out of the system, right? Men, my son, my husband, my father, can opt out of the conversation around sexism. Why? Because they benefit from it. So they don't have to understand it. It's working for them, right? It's working. So one of the reasons you could opt out is because you're white. So I've never had the, had the luxury. So Lance Hughes is the Vice President for Student Affairs at Clara State University, and um, I just read one of her, um, she posted, not posted, look, I'm thinking social media. Um, there was an article about her where she said, um, I don't have the luxury of opting out, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the luxury of opting out, and now you're choosing to opt in, which, right. But just like in other big movements, Silence and keeping your distance helps keep the status quo. Can you and say that again? the status quo is hurting people. Repeat that for us. Sure. Silence and keeping your distance supports the status quo. It says, I'm not uncomfortable enough to do anything about this. Which oh, says that you are in support of the things that's, that things that status quo is allowing to happen. Mm. Our anti-immigration policies, the children in cages, um, a lot of things, uh, police brutality right now, the number of brown and black men who are in prisons, 
the fact that um, for years in the 80s, we were predicting prison populations based on the number of brown and black boys in elementary right? So we need to look into that. Otherwise, don't tell me you have in integrity because that's where I'm gonna be like, ooh, actually no. Because you say you value, you value me, you value my kids, you value human life. Do you? Do you value all of it? or just particular flavors? So I think this leads right into a question that I've been wanting to ask for a long time. And I'm, I'm actually going to change my, vo my vocabulary from when we talked just a few minutes ago uh, before we started recording to what you just shared with us um, around, you know, around integrity and, and honesty and, and all that good stuff that we proclaim to have in agriculture. Um, I grew up on a large dairy in Utah, and you don't milk 5,000 cows without help. And um, the Latinx community has been instrumental in my family's dairy success. They are family friends. They literally helped us pour cement and pull fence and have for the past 25 years. Um, we wouldn't survive without them. And I hate even that there is a them to have to talk about, you know. But something that I've been wondering for a very long time, well, since 2016, as a matter of fact, is how we can be so reliant on immigrant labor and then vote for somebody who is xenophobic and racist like President Trump. I bet that was I imagine that there was, that was a vulnerable statement um, from where I said. Um, because I think we need to be clear as agriculturalists, what matters more, our commitment to agriculture or our commitment to whiteness? And I think in the last election, the answer was whiteness. Why do you think that was? Is that because it's- Oh, there's books and books and books and books and books and books and books about that. Um, it goes back, it, it, because we all know, so if you think about Ann Cooper, right, in the Central Park, who called the um, police on <coughs> Mr. Cooper, the black burger, the man, right, who recorded her. She knows, and I think it's important, it has been pointed out by a number of folks, she, politically, she was progressive, right? So that part's important, um, because, again, this is not Right now, it feels political because of what people are saying, but this, this is bigger than the, the politics of the United States. <clears throat> so, we, we, when we feel threatened, right, there's lots of social scientists who talk about that. When we feel threatened, we want um, someone to come in who um, barks loud, who um, may not be informed, but they say it like uh, they know what they're talking about, mm -hmm. um, and who blames someone, right? Gives folks a scapegoat because otherwise it's us, right? And we don't wanna bear that responsibility. We don't wanna take a look in the mirror. How did I contribute to us getting to this position? Um, and it, 
frankly, it's the same kind of mentality that allowed Hitler to rise to power. It allowed Mussolini to rise to power. Um, this, is, this is not a new phenomenon. And that's why I think folks were so, particularly folks of color, were so disappointed and scared when President Trump was elected. Because we have been forced, because we couldn't opt out of the history lessons, by and large, right, these are generalizations. So I, I know um, that folks um, are going to point out individual cases where what I'm saying is not true. That's a whole different thing. I can tell you why that happens too. But um, in general, we didn't get to opt out of knowing that and knowing that on a bone deep level that when you start doing us and them and when you can blame someone, it's easier. So it, right going back to that quote, the Valine um, stated or uh, read out for us, it, it, animalizes, it dehumanizes folks, right? And if we can dehumanize people, then we can do cruel and unimaginable things to them and to their kids and to the people they love, right? We, we don't think about how our reliance on um, Central American, Mexican Central American labor has destabilized their countries. Because if all the men leave, then what happens? What happens to the kids? Who's home? Right? We've, we, we never talk about that. What, what is our responsibility from all that? Right? We don't talk about those kinds of things. But if we can blame those folks who are picking our blueberries, who are milking our cows, who, um, you know, who when I grew up, help put us put up hay, um, all of those kinds of things. If Don't we can dehumanize them, then we can, we can blame them for things, mm -hmm. just like the Nazis did. That's why it's scary. Mm -hmm. The way out of this is what we're doing, right? By actual ha actually having dialogue, talking to people who do not think exactly like us, whose experiences are not exactly like ours, and by doing our own homework. It goes back to your statement about change comes with diversity and different perspectives and different experiences and having everybody, every gender, every race, every sexual orientation at the table to have these conversations because agriculture feeds the world. Agriculture involves everyone on some level. And when I get frustrated a little bit by people, especially in my home community, that say, well, all these protests and all these riots, it doesn't affect me. I've never, I've never done anything mean to a black man. I'm like, no, but you're, <coughs> you probably have and a different opinion than they do, or you haven't even had a chance to listen to why they're doing the things they're doing. And we can't even have a dialogue because everybody just gets so defensive. But in reality, agriculture is sustaining our communities. And this all is a systemic basis for our community, but they're blinded or don't want to educate themselves on the bigger issue that's at stake. We need each other, right? We, um, my liberation is tied up in yours. 
And if I do, am not paying attention to that, then I can get very narrow in what I'm thinking about, right? So you're right. Maybe you haven't won. Maybe, right? How many? I remember um, this was when I was in animal sciences. I went to a recruitment and uh, recruitment and retention of students of color. It was going to help me learn. Um, it was at K-State. And we had this improv thing, right? So people like me who were recruiters got on stage and did improv. Right? They did it, was it was hilarious. And so there were there was um, this black woman who I will always remember. She was doing this monologue where she talked about when she would go in, she would recruit in Nebraska and Kansas, and the um, often the principal would pull her aside at the beginning of the day and be like. Um, I, I need you to know that this is going to be the first time that most of these students have seen a black person in real life. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's real. That's a real thing. So maybe, maybe you haven't been mean to someone because you've never been exposed to them. Right. You haven't seen them. So it's easier. It's less hard to hate someone, you know, Wait, did I say that right? It is harder to hate someone you know, mm -hmm. right? Someone, um, right? I can disagree with you, but it's hard for me to hate you. Right. If, if I mean. know that you feel, if I know that you love, if I know that you care about your family as much as I care about mine, mm -hmm. that's harder. But if we don't have that exposure, we can say, you know, I've never been mean, so I'm not racist. I'm here to let us off that hook. We're all racist. We are all racist because I am racist. You are racist. We are all racist you, because we're in a racist society. And often we want to get, Elaine, you're going to remember this. I'm going <laughs> into teacher mode. The individual level, right? The institutional level and the systemic level. We often want to talk at the at the individual level. I've never done anything. I've always been nice. But you were failing to look at institutionally, how have we um, created policy, right? The Brasetto programs. How did we create this structure that allows agricultural labor to, to be the way it is right now in 2020 because of things we institutionalized? And then systemically, why is the best predictor for lifetime success in terms of earning potential um, the zip code of your childhood? Right? That's systemic. So, right, it's not the fact that I, I got great grades and got a great ACT score. By and large, uh, again, generalizations because every, everyone can point out individual things that happen. But if we look at generally, I can predict how a kid's going to do based on his childhood zip code. Mm -hmm. So my kids, right? Both of the, the, their parents both have PhDs. They have a zip code in a particular area. Um, they're going to have to screw up to not make it. Their it, life is set up for them to succeed. It goes back to kind of the saying that I've been blessed, like to kind of ride on the train. It's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know and where you grow up. 
and like it's up to me to walk through some of those doors but i have the privilege of knowing people of being surrounded by white privilege and having them open the doors for me to walk through something that a lot of america doesn't have and i think um so one of the things i talk about a lot in agriculture like if you want to study chemistry no one says were your parents chemists <laughs> right if you want to say, in the college of engineering no one said were your parents engineers mm -mm. right that, no mm -mm. no in agriculture though that's the place where we're like what's your lineage right i, I want to see your whole pedigree were yeah. you in 4-H? Were you in FFA? Um, did you show? Because that's a different kind, right? Did you show? Or did you, right? Right, we have. It's so true. What kind of hat do you wear? Right, we have all these. I did a paper for a class when I was a PhD student on hats at NCBA and what they signify. Think about it. They tell you a lot. So it's in only in agriculture that we, if you grew up in agriculture, we think that, that we want that, right? It gives you a leg up. Whereas we know that sometimes what you learned um, on a dairy farm it might be working. So I think about um, the first time that uh, my husband went and fed with my grandfather, right? Mm -hmm. So I took him home for the, my husband home for the first time and he goes to feed with my grandfather. And every day my grandpa drives by the house a half hour earlier, right? Because he's just, you know, you weren't up, you can't go feed. So every day, Terry must have really liked me because he was up a half hour earlier every day and he'd go feed. And I said, did you know, did, did you're studying nutrition? Did you say, you know, did you notice anything he could improve? And he's like, I'm not telling him anything, <laughs> right? It's working for him. I'm not telling him anything. When the reality is there were lots of ways that he could, that could be improved, but we wouldn't, in agriculture, sometimes people come through a lineage and may not have learned the, the best way to approach things, right? It might be the way my grandpa did it, my great grandpa did it, but it's not the best way for it to be done. It's not the most efficient, it's not the most productive, whatever. And it hasn't adapted we, with time and culture either. Absolutely. And something, absolutely. something we're fond of saying, especially in agriculture, is that just because grandpa did it that way doesn't mean that we have to do it that way. We've always done it this way are the most dangerous words in the language. At least yeah. in terms and it's of it's not necessarily production. working anymore. Right? So why is it that we it's some sort of litmus test whether or not you come from an agricultural background, whether or not you could be a real agriculturalist. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of real agriculturalists in agriculture who don't have ag backgrounds from their childhood and they're just silent about it. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about it because they know that, but now that they have so many degrees or 
they're in this kind of job, they just, right? I only talk about here and now. I don't talk about the past. The other piece of that is, does Val's agricultural background mean the same as mine? Or is hers more valuable? And I would argue, and I have argued in papers, that we value hers more than mine. We value yours more than mine, right? We often, um, we assume a kind of agricultural background. And so as a former farm worker, why is mine any less just because I didn't own the cattle or own the sheep or own the field that I was picking up hay in or the fields where I was building fence? Why is that less valuable? But the reality is it is. It doesn't sell either. Like those stories don't sell. It goes, you brought up in class, the God made a farmer video. And, and I love that video. The first, like I, I loved it that I could see grandpa on the farm. It was, it was my family in a nutshell. And I openly said that in class and I want to know, you should share what you and the rest of the class kind of opened my eyes to see because that was my world in that video, but that's what the world was seeing too. Who was left out? One of the things, one of the um, critiques that I hear around diversity, equity, inclusion a lot is you want us to be ashamed of who we are. I don't, I haven't said that. And I don't say that. You want me to give up um, these things I love, right? You loved this video because it reminded you of these people who are very important to you, right? They're, they're your family, they're your heritage. Nothing is lost in celebrating more than that. It's not a zero-sum game, right? Mm -hmm. So we can celebrate your heritage and we can celebrate mine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take anything away from you. And how come there's a predisposition to think that it does? The zero-sum game um, is that, that phrase is something I'm fascinated by because it really does seem like if people think that you're getting ahead, mm -hmm. Then I'm falling behind. Then I'm falling behind or you're taking something from me. Where does that come from? I think it comes from our fascination with money. The fact that we value money more than I think damn near anything. Um, and I think it's a lie that we've been told. Because if you've been told that, the status quo continues to benefit, right? Because you're not going to fight against it. Right? It's going to benefit you enough. You're not going to be uncomfortable enough to question it. Mm -hmm. And I think right now, our country is demanding that we get uncomfortable, that we have uncomfortable conversations. So I'm going to go back to the example you gave, Aline, about um, someone you run into in your hometown. Um, so maybe they haven't done anything overtly racist right, overtly mean, I'll use that word, to someone who is different than them. But have they laughed at the jokes who de that dehumanized those groups? Have they made those jokes? Um, have they made it clear to particularly their white daughters that they should never date some a man who's not white, right? Do those white daughters know on some level that they shouldn't? 
right? Has that been communicated? Those are, so when you think about, um, this is floating around social media everywhere, but when we think about racism, if you think about it as an iceberg, we're usually talking about, we want to focus on, right? We want to focus on the individual level, going back to these three levels. So we want to focus on the top. Mm -hmm. We want to, you know, we're looking for our KKK members. We're looking for the Proud Boys. We're looking for um, avowed white supremacists, right? We're looking for all of that. We're not willing to look at everything else that's underneath it. What does media say? So when you're listening, when, when I listen to uh, the news and they say something like someone was murdered or someone was killed, I'm listening because if they don't say by a black person or by a Hispanic person, then I know they're white. But they never say by a white person. Right? We only call it out when it's not white. And so then how does that fuel what we think of when we think of criminals? We put a label right? on them as black or Hispanic or whatever. And then the white person that got charged with the crimes, they're a bad person. They're just a bad person, right? There's, there might be some mental health issues there. We just don't know. You know, we just not don't a, know what happened there. They're not a bad. It's a deeper, right? It's a deeper level of empathy. Yeah. So we have to look deeper at how systemically and institutionally we we have embedded <coughs> racism, particularly in agriculture, and then white folks got to talk to white folks, right? Which is why I admire so much what y'all are doing. It's my job as someone who identifies the way that I do to talk to the Latinx community because there's plenty of anti-blackness in the Latinx community. Colorism is alive and well. So I need to have that conversation. I need to talk to my family members, right? My extended family members, family friends about the jokes, about the way we talk about folks when they're not there, all of that. But we need allies in a white community to do that with white folks. How do we start and, that? Yeah. Keep going. How do we start that conversation? Because to stand up to people I have valued or that I look up to and say, hey, your comment, you know, is it social media is kind of a gray area um, for me because you don't want to pick up, I don't like to pick a fight and it can end up in a rabbit trail. But how do I win? we're sitting around the table having a glass of whiskey after a long day of branding. How do I bring this conversation up or how do I stand up for this, these topics? One, um, I think that the avoidance of conflict and how conflict um, is navigated within families, right, is cultural. So I don't know how that works in your family, but there are plenty of books to read around all of this, right? White fragility, how to be an anti-racist, um, 
I think it's 35 dumb things well-intended people say to widen the diversity gap. Didn't you have to read that in class? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I fell victim to half of them at least. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, so it might be that statement. You know, I, I had, I, I, we did this podcast and I was reminded of this book. And I remember a time when I said this, and now I realize how problematic that statement was, right? Um, I think there's plenty on the news right now to bring up and have a conversation. And let me be clear, the status quo will defend itself, right? It's designed to work this way. And as women, as young women, you're, um, you're going to be reprimanded for um, bringing up these taboo topics. Because I would argue that we all know what the problems are. Otherwise, Ann Cooper would not have acted that way in City Park. Right? She knew what she was doing and she knew what she was saying. So we know we just have chosen to avoid it. And we numb, our, we numb ourselves to it too because we don't, we don't want to make ourselves uncomfortable or we don't want to have a conflict over, over dinner with the family. Um, but sitting back and letting the way things, the way granddaddy did everything continue to go on in our operations, but also in the racism in our family cultures, in our family cultures, we need, it starts with dialogue and being uncomfortable and being, Brene Brown being awkward about it. Like it's going to be awkward, but and having the courage to stand up is the hardest part. Well, you're incredibly courageous, Belene. You're selling yourself short. I know that you're courageous. Um, and part of it is the willingness to make mistakes. So I, I talked to you about this in class. Um, so the first, when I was introduced to this, um, the idea of social identity and privilege and oppression and marginalization, marginalization and mattering, when I learned it was in this class called President's Leadership Program. And I was probably in my second year of college, I'd have to go back and look, but I was introduced to all this stuff and I'm cradle Catholic, right? Mexican Catholic, um, and I was learning about sexual orientation and how, how hurtful my views were, how harmful my views were, how discriminatory my views were, and how incongruent my views were relative to what my stated values were, right? I if I continued to hold the views that I had, then I could not be congruent with my values around honesty, around integrity, around um, justice, around equity, right? What things that I held to be true. And I went home at Thanksgiving and started that conversation with my grandpa. And how did that An conversation go? Mexican cowboy, terribly. I didn't know what I was doing, right? I, <clears throat> it went badly. One, I was talking to grandpa, right? Out of turn. <laughs> Who was I? 
<laughs> to be, you know, bringing up something like this. My uncles got involved, right? All the men were talking. The women were silent. And um, it didn't go well. And I didn't change anyone's mind, right? We didn't grow. It wasn't a dialogue. I went in for a debate and I lost badly. <laughs> Right? So no one, no one learned anything there. But through dialogue, we can grow. And what if people don't want to have that dialogue? Because there are plenty of things that we don't even want to talk about in agriculture that are not near the magnitude of this issue that they don't want to talk about. What if they don't want to talk? I mean, you've said that we're brave for doing what we're doing, and we appreciate that. But what if we're just shouting into the void? You're not. Someone will listen. So um, I thought that for, like, if I go back to my ag leadership class the first time I taught it, I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? These students don't want to hear this. They don't want to learn, right? They don't want to know this stuff. And yet, I am getting a number of reach outs now, given the context of the United States and, and the protests that are happening from former students saying thanks. I wouldn't know what's going on here if we wouldn't have that conversation. So it might be that uh, hear me now, listen to me later thing. Plant a right. seed in somebody's head, and then when it's watered, it could, even 10 years from now, it grows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I grow, right? I'm not the same person. I don't want to stop growing. Right. I don't want to be the person I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I want to grow and evolve, and I think... Um, I think that's part of what we're put here to do is when you know better, do better. Right. And yeah. I want to know better so I can do better. Absolutely. I think that's I think a also, I think um, one of the things that I think about is the lack of willingness to be vulnerable. Right. So go back to Brene Brown. <laughs> but if, um, and folks before her said it too, she just said it on TEDx and, it caught on, um, or on a TED Talk, and it caught, in, caught on. Um, and she did it well, right? She's doing great work. I'm not taking anything away from Brene Brown. Um, but part of the unwillingness to have a conversation, I think, is tied back to an unwillingness to, one, be wrong, and say, oh, I was wrong, and change my mind, right? And two, to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Right, because if I don't know everything, that makes me vulnerable. And the reality is, none of us know everything. Not even close. Some people are good at acting that way, though. Mm. <laughs> and isn't it boring? Yeah, it boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that conversation is not exciting or interesting at all. It's not. A no, you can read that out of a textbook. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. This is not. No, that's not. That's not dialogue, that's not relationship. Um, that's not seeing the other person. But a lot of that comes with 
getting to know yourself and being honest about what are your biases, right? What did you not learn? What are you willing to grow in now? What are you not willing, like there are some things probably that I can't think of any right now, but I'm sure if I asked my kids or people I work with, they could come up with things that I'm not willing to go on right now, right? I don't have, have the time, I don't have the energy. Um, it's not uncomfortable problems. enough. I have privilege, but it's not uncomfortable enough for me to deal with that. But we gotta get uncomfortable for us to deal with it. And be able to be empathetic and crawl in the trench with somebody else and feel feel their pain to be able to relate to the protesters right now, to, to be able to re relate to George Floyd's family and all his friends. And, and just be able, like, if that were to be my brother or if that was my father, I would, I would be outraged, but it's not. Or his daughter, right? His daughter. Yeah. Or his daughter. Like, yeah. And that's, I don't, people aren't willing to put on somebody else's pants or crawl in the trenches. They'll just give them a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. You really did pay attention to class. <laughs> you made me cry a few times. So. <laughs> yeah. But to sit with someone in pain, right. And to see their humanity, that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to problem solve. When we realize as agriculturists that our, our success is tied to the success, at least the way we've set it up right now, to immigrant labor. Mm -hmm. Right? And so who, who are you actually voting against when you vote this way? Right? Yourself. Um, I, I don't think I've said it while we were recording, but I remember going to NCBA. I told you all about this earlier. Um, and a lobbyist, I went and listened to a lobbyist um, at NCBA. He was one of NCBA's lobbyists. And he said to the large room, right? It's a ballroom at, or a big room, a conference room in the hotel. And this lobbyist said, um, you've got to quit thinking about agricultural issues as Republican issues or Democrat issues. You need to think of them as agricultural issues. So where does your loyalty lie? Right? What do you want me to lobby on? Do you want me to just take on, you know, support Republican issues or do you want me to support agricultural issues? Because they don't always align. Yeah. So... Right. And he was absolutely calling the folks out um, on that. And this, this had to have been 10, 10 plus years ago, a little while ago. And for somebody of that culture, too, who the majority of NCBA members fall on the Republican side. And I can I can say that from experience, but that's what I'm struggling with. Um, within politics all across the country is that you you stand on one platform or the other and you vote one way or the other and you have to stand on all those values. Why can't I walk across the aisle and have a conversation with somebody that's a little bit different and a little diverse from my thinking because this is a cult, a country issue. This is an agriculture issue, not just my issue or my platform's issue. 
And I think we forget. Because I think we're more in love with power than we are in in interested in solving actual problems. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. So as the naive young people in the room, why? There are plenty of issues in agriculture, particularly in the dairy industry that I am incredibly passionate about and the status quo stays and people are more in love with power or money than they are with doing whatever's right or making things better for people on the other end of a production line. And I get laughed at. I, I have literally been laughed at when I have shared some of my views about those things. And I, not to equate this to the current climate, but, but that's a real thing out there. Yeah. Tell me how that felt. Tell me how it felt when you got laughed at. There's a reason for this. I'm not just trying to like revel in your pain. How did it feel? I felt like I was getting spit in my face. Like I was less than, like what I thought was not valid or even worthy of consideration. Right, you're being put in your place. Yes. Right, how dare you, you young woman. Yeah. Question the way things always have been. Right, so we say that we're, um, in agriculture in particular, that we... We think a meritocracy works. That if you just work hard, it's all gonna work out, right? If you work hard, you get good grades, you learn a lot, right? It didn't work for you there. No. Right? No. It wasn't enough. Because you could be shut down and put in your place. And it's effective, right? It takes courage, it takes self-esteem, it takes self-care to pick yourself back up, right, and go at it again, maybe not today, but tomorrow, um, but the status quo will defend itself. And it has, it absolutely has, for any number of issues, pick out of a roulette wheel. <laughs> and so you're screaming, Pay attention to this because, because you value agriculture. You value agriculturalists. You are bought into the success of agriculture, right? Absolutely. I think, right? Yeah. And you're, so you're screaming, yo, you're about to fall off a cliff. Pay attention. And for, I think, this moment in time in the United States tells us sometimes we have to fall off a cliff in order to listen because we we you know you gotta go back to slavery and in terms of black issues in the united states right there were protests then mm -hmm. slaves rebelled Not, no, people weren't happy about it right that's a myth some people actually try to say that you know some some folks were enslaved let me be clear, I should, instead of saying slaves, I should have said people who were enslaved this whole time. But people who were enslaved, they weren't, they weren't happy about it, right? So we have had moments in time throughout our history where folks have let us know clearly, the 60s mm. come to mind, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And we're there again. People get fed up enough that they're willing to put it all out on the line. Mm -hmm. because right if you listen so as a mom when I listen to those black women talk about their fear for their sons 
I have, if, at least I, I can't look away. I can't look away from that. That's real. And I can under, I can't, I can never know what it is to be a black mother in the United States, but I know what it is to love my child. And so I can enter the conversation from there. And that's what I think we're gonna have to do, right? We're gonna have to get real simple and real basic, mm -hmm. right? I, I feel like it's almost like an 80s tune, was it? Um, um, wasn't it Sting who's saying um, the Russians love their children too? You can look that up. Um, <laughs> um, but when we were in the Cold War, right, it was easy to hate those people because we we, we had vilified them, mm -hmm. right? We no longer saw them as fellow humans. So you and at least in 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 the faith community that I come from, that is not okay. Mm -hmm. So I cannot have, I cannot say that I'm a person of faith if I hate it. You just contrasted something that I have that I've been wondering about for a long time. Um, instead of identifying with someone based on color of skin, you identify with a black mother based on a shared life experience. How do we continue to do that? I know that we talked about it a little bit, but I mean, that was really powerful for me just now to relate to somebody on that human level, like you just said, rather than physical appearance. Because how can we hate somebody? It's easier to hate somebody we don't know than hate somebody we know. Mm -hmm. Or know their experience, right? So you can read about their experience. And I'm biased because I'm an educator. So often my go-to is more education. But you can watch movies, right? So watch 13th on Netflix, right? Learn about that. Um, there, there are resource lists after resource lists that tell you things you can do. There are podcasts. Um, is it 1619? Am I getting the year right? Um, from the New York Times that talks about how anti-blackness was built into the society of the United States. Um, read something out of the Atlantic, right? Get to know um, the stories and listen, right? Listen. So one of the things that um, I was always frustrated by when I worked in agriculture full-time was folks would always say, and I mean always, we just need to tell our story. Oh. <laughs> and they'll, whoever this magical they is, they'll understand us, right? They'll, they'll be okay with um, how we treat um, dairy caps. They'll be okay with... Um, GMOs. They'll be okay with, right, there's a whole list of yeah. things, right? They'll be okay with everything we, that we do. Everything, if they just hear our story. Yep. The piece of this that always made me just, oh, <laughs> is, are you then willing to listen to their story? 
And are you listening to listen and not listening to respond? Yeah. And I think... Can you hear? Can you hear their story and listen? There is a reason, right? And that people view agriculture the way that they do and why we have some of the issues we have. Again, I have done more agricultural lobbying on at um, sports games, at um, in pickup lines for picking up my kids, um, around things like, do you feed your kids milk? Yes, I feed my kids milk. Do you feed them only organic milk? No, actually I don't. I feed them the cheapest gallon of milk that is in the, <laughs> right? And why, right? So the, the lobbying I did was there, but that was because of relationship. Why would someone listen to me? Because they see me in line, right? They see me raising my kids. And they, they see me you. showing up in the rain to watch a baseball game again. Right? <laughs> so, so it's easier to be like, huh? Okay, let me look into that some more. But we're so convinced we're right that we won't look into it some more. Well, and we're, there was a post you posted a couple days ago, too, um, with resources on anti-racism and how white people can start educating themselves. And you got a little pushback because, well, aren't you, Shannon, you're racist against white people now. And, and it's like, no, but... But that's, that's the defensive nature we take because you're, you're saying that our status quo needs to be questioned <laughs> or our privilege needs to be looked at or, or use our privilege for something more than making money or whatever. Is that? Staying comfortable. Yeah. Moving on to power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be clear, it was a family member who pushed back right? A, a white family member. Um, usually when I do trainings, um, so I, recently I was in the Midwest and I was doing a training um, at a large agricultural space. <laughs> and um, one of the things that I say going in is let's just, I'm just going to take care of this up front, but I don't hate white people. I'm married to one. My kids are, are, are you know, white. Um, let, let's just be clear about that. I don't hate white people. So we, we can let that go, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We can let that piece go. Now hear what I'm saying. Now listen to when I'm talking about social identity. So it was a family member and it was uncomfortable because um, the reality is I've encountered a number of racists um, in, in my profession, we call them microaggressions that have happened in the family that I married into, right? And would they say that they are racist? No, right? Do they love my kids? No, yes, they very much <laughs> love They love my kids. <laughs> and even they've told me they love me and I think sometimes they even like me. Um, and I've, I've dealt with stuff. My kids pick up on things, right? They're like, why'd they say that? They know, they can hear the undertones, the, the jokes, right? Or when a conversation, when they realize we're in the room, when a conversation gets quiet, <laughs> right? Oh, 
Shannon's here. You can always feel like, Shannon's here. Be quiet. Don't talk about that anymore. It was a family member. So there's risk there, right? There is risk, particularly when you're engaging with family members. And it is not racist to point out that someone is white. It is not racist to name someone's identity. It's not. Everyone knows, right? When a black person walks into a room, people know that they're black. Mm -hmm. like right I know that light and I, I I perceive it at least she can tell me something else right everyone gets to identify for themselves but I perceive I treat you a certain way um a story here that I think relates is one time I was being asked we uh we need to bring in some speakers to talk to students I don't know if it was for graduation or we had this thing called the spring branding banquet that I did um, help organize for a while. I can't remember what it was for, but we needed to bring in speakers. And everyone that I named was a person of color. And so the person I was talking to said, can you get out of your ethnicity for a minute? And I looked at him and I said, can you stop thinking like a man for a minute? Right? There's, there's no way for me to divorce my identities. I am Chicana. I am a woman. That is there whether I acknowledge it or not. It affects how I think. So it is not racist to name it. I think it's honest. And it what? creates that dialogue that we so need to have. <laughs> Let's name what we're talking about. When we're talking about men, let's talk about men. When we're talking about women, let's talk about women. When we're talking about other genders, let's talk about those. Let's just name it. It's only this, um, so one of the things that folks have said to me in the past is, um, you're not really Mexican, right? Which is, is, it's really racist to say that in case, in case folks that are listening are wondering, that's a racist thing to say. What that tells me is I don't fit your definition and stereotype in your head of what a Mexican is. And that right? Am I too educated? Do, is my hair not right? Um, am I wearing the, not the right clothes? Am I communicating in a way that makes you question your stereotype? And you married a white man. Right. Right, exactly. So how, one, I don't need to prove my identity to you or anyone, right? It's part of who you are. You don't have to prove every day that you're a woman, right? It, it is. You identify this way. So we can't divorce those things. We can try to shut them down. We can try to quiet them, but they're still there. It's only when it's different from the status quo that we question it, right? So if I had given a list of white men to this person across the desk from me, he wouldn't have said anything, right? My list of potential speakers questioned the status quo. How did he react to you saying, can you stop being a man for a minute? <sighs> <laughs> Didn't go over well, huh? 
left. And it was over, the conversation was over. And that's where agriculture stands on this issue today too, is they laugh, they blow it over, and it's not their problem. It's really not affecting us. It is, and it's going to. You have just laid out for the past hour and a half exactly why it does affect us. And we can't thank you enough for coming onto our podcast. Um, this barely scratched the surface of, of what we need to talk about in agriculture. And we hope very much that you would come back and join us again and, and continue to help enlighten us um, about these issues in agriculture and in our society. And um, again, just so thankful for your insight and, and your perspective and uh, courage to be here. Thank you very much for joining us, Shannon. It was an honor to have the conversation and actually it was incredibly affirming, um, Val, to know that it made a difference. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it has truly changed my life and I hope that this episode somewhere, somehow reaches at least one person somewhere in the agriculture community. And listeners, we thank you for tuning in. And if you've made it this far, we really, really appreciate it. Um, you, you know how to reach us. We're on all social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also email us. So thank you. Thank you.